0: Happy Easter. Wasn't that a great time of worship? Thank you, Jamie and Ellen and George, for leading us just to celebrate the wonder of Easter. We celebrate the gospel here every Sunday, um, the death and resurrection of Christ. But this particular Sunday is just so wonderful, isn't it, to join in with hundreds of millions of Christians around the world, every tribe and color and creed and nation celebrating the same thing. It's just wonderful. Um, I'm Philip, by the way, if you're new here, and I'm one of the pastors, and I'm going to be speaking to you from Romans 6. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to 11. And if you are new to the Bible, Romans is one of the most famous letters that Paul wrote to an early church in Rome in the first century. And uh, chapter six, just before we dive into it, the context of where, what Paul is saying now is he has spent five chapters outlining the urgency of the need that mankind has fallen and fallible, though we are, in the face of a holy, perfect God. And then he's been telling us about the enormity of the grace that has been lavished upon us that's bridged that gap, that's drawn fallible, fallen mankind to himself in forgiveness. And he's been telling us how amazing grace and how it comes with such freedom, such abundance. It costs Christ so much, and yet we receive it for free. And so Paul anticipates a question that will come, which is, hang on a minute, if, if grace just keeps on coming, if by faith being united to Christ means I wake up every day with the approval and the love of God and the abundance of grace just keeps on coming to me, if that's the case, can I just carry on doing what I want because grace keeps coming? That's the question Paul is kind of anticipating, just so, so, so you know the context in which he is talking Verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse four, this is our key verse for this morning. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, key phrase, Implications of the resurrection are enormous, And incredible and numerous. We've already been singing and reading about them this morning. The resurrection means that death is not the end. The most implacable foe that mankind has has been defeated. There is a hope beyond the grave. The resurrection means um, that everything that Christ accomplished on the cross was vindicated by God the Father in the resurrection. The resurrection means that we have a hope ourselves beyond the grave. The resurrection means that God's renewal and restoration and healing of creation is going to culminate in a new heavens and a new earth. The Resurrection means that Christ could ascend having risen again. And if he's ascended, he can sit down at the right hand of the Father in triumph and victory. And if he's ascended and sat down, he can one day return to do that restoring and healing and renewing of all things. The implications are amazing. The implication I want to talk to you about this morning, because it's the implication of this passage, is this. That as wonderful as the eternal hope beyond the grave, that Christ's victory over the grave means for those that are united to him by faith, as wonderful as though that is, the implication of this passage is that we don't just wait for that incredible life beyond the grave, a new resurrection body. We run towards it with newness of life. Let me say that again. The implication from this passage is that we don't just wait for the new creation, for the return of Christ, for a resurrection body to enjoy Christ with him forever. We run towards that eternal hope with newness of life. That means with freedom and with purpose. It's no coincidence for me. I think I was thinking a lot about this, this race of life this week, and, and, and someone had a word for me about it on Thursday, and then on Friday, those, some of us were at Good Everyday Kingston for a Good Friday service, and Akhtar was mentioning this whole issue of the running of the race of life from Hebrews 12, and then this morning, I'd forgotten that it's the Kingston Half Marathon this morning, so people were running past in various states of disrepair because they're finishing the race just in the marketplace there, having set off at half ten. I think there's still a few slightly weary souls making their way towards the end, and so I've really just been sensing God speaking about the reality of the Christian race, if you like, here on earth, and of the freedom that we have been invited to enjoy during this earthly race. And what I'm sensing that what God wants to say to us this morning is that the implication of the resurrection for you, if you are united to Christ through faith, if you're a Christian this morning, there is fresh life, there is newness of life available to you this morning. It's as though God wants to send some of us out this morning with new spiritual legs. Amen, Isabella. She's getting the hang of it already. I really believe God wants to send some of us out this morning with a new sense of spiritual energy and freedom and life, not simply to not simply to wait for our eternal life, but to run now with freedom and with purpose. Why do I think that? Because that's what God's saying in this passage. Verse four, if we could bring that up. Verse four is the key verse for us this morning. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, or run, you could say, in newness of life. So Paul is in saying the point, in some senses, of Christ dying and our faith uniting us to him. The point of that was so that God could then raise Christ from the dead, our faith remains, keeps us united to him, and we walk in newness of life. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that God could raise Christ from the the dead to life, and those of us that are united to him by faith can walk or run in newness of life. Hebrews 12 is the passage that I was referring to before, the biblical imagery for the Christian life being like a race. I'm sure many of you have come across it before. And the writer of Hebrews says that the Christian life is like a race. And he talks about the cloud of witnesses, by which he means all of the heroes of the faith of the centuries old, the Bible, who are there in the crowd, as that were, cheering us on in the stadium. It's a wonderful imagery. He talks about the, the race that every Christian has to run by virtue of being a Christian, and also about the unique lane, as it were, the unique race, he's implying, that each Christian has to run. And he also says that the nature of running this Christian life, this Christian race, is to throw off the sin that clings so closely to us. Another translation says that so easily entangles us. And so he's writing that to Christians because he knows that the results of the cross are the power of sin's been broken. It doesn't have to control us anymore. Praise God. He knows that the punishment or the penalty for sin has been taken. It was poured out on Christ, crushed him, not on us. Praise God. So the penalty and the power of sin have been broken and dealt with. But he knows that the presence of sin until Christ returns to fully restore and redeem all things, is still at work. And so he's saying, Christian, as you run, throw off or kick off that the, the stuff that entangles us, that slows us down, that stops us running with freedom and with purpose. I um, was, a, 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 in, um, a few years ago, a number of years ago, I was working in a school, a boarding school. I was only, what's called a gap student. So I was like 19, not a qualified teacher, just a, a sort of Keen person who helped, basically, and did whatever, was, whatever needed doing with a view to becoming a teacher, which happened in the end. And um, this school that I taught at, they held a, a cross-country race every year called the Swanborne Chase it's about three or four miles long, I think, through the various Buckinghamshire countryside and things. And because it went through the various parts of the countryside, the fields and so forth, and because the school was for younger children, so only up to 13, so the kids in the race were 11, 12 and 13, they wanted them to get lost, obviously, just as you wouldn't if they were your kids. Neither did they want them to conk out and never get home again. So, they had what's called a rabbit and a hare. Sorry, <laughs> not a rabbit and a hare, a hare and a tortoise. They had a hare and a tortoise. The tortoise was a teacher who ran at the back to scoop up any that conked out and bring them home again or to cheer them on. And the hare was the teacher who ran at the front to make sure they went the right way. And given that I was 19, and that's the kind of job you got given to do when you were 19 at the school. So Muggins was nominated to be the hare to run at the front to make sure they knew where they were going. Now, beforehand, I thought I probably should just check the course, like walk the course so I do know where we're going, so I don't leave these kids on a merry, a merry dance. So I went round the course, kind of following the map, and there's a few signs and things, and I got to a stile, and rather than going straight over and keep going straight, I went over and turned right into a different field. And it's one of those fields that just had really long grass, and it had been raining, so the grass was not only long, but it was wet. And if you ever run through long wet grass, it just kind of clings to your feet and ankles. It really slows you down. And I'm jogging away through this field, firstly thinking this can't be the right route. Surely we wouldn't make 11-year-olds run through this. And I'm also thinking this is really hard work, harder than it should be, because the long wet grass is sticking to my legs and tripping me up, and even getting wrapped around my ankles. And that's what the rite of Hebrews is getting at. It's the nature of sin. It stops Christians running with freedom and with purpose and with energy and with fruitfulness. So question, bit of kind of honest heart work this morning. What would you say is the thing that tends to be the thing that still seems to cling closely, the thing that stops you running your Christian life with freedom and with purpose and with momentum? It might be an age-old thing. It might be self-pity, that tendency just to look inward and feel sorry for oneself because we're making it about us. And that, there's no life there, is there? That's not newness of life. Self-pity is just bleh, death, wraps around our ankles, stops us running. Worry and anxiety. We don't like to call it a sin, but Jesus does. There's no life in worry, is there? Those of us who've been consumed with worry and anxiety, there's no life there. It just wraps itself around our spiritual ankles and stops us running the race that God's called us to run. What is the, the thing? We've all got one, I'm sure. And my belief this morning, I think what God's been saying very simply is He wants to bring fresh newness of life to you. He wants to empower you and release you to walk out these doors. In fact, run, as it were, out of these doors with newness of life to run the race marked out for you and to kick off the sin that so easily entangles or that clings so closely. He wants to do that this morning. Let me just unpack that a little bit more so you can see that it's coming from the passage just to be clear, I'm defining newness of life. Chris is doing a great job of following my slightly um, convoluted approach. I'm, de- I'm defining newness of life as a life lived free from sin and alive to God. A life lived free from sin and alive to God. Where do I get that from? Just so you can see it in the text. Firstly, free from sin. Can we bring up the next slide, please, Chris? I've highlighted those things. This is what, verse 6 we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's making it clear, newness of life in part means free from that which entangles us and trips us up and does nothing to bring glory to, the God, to God or to life to us. Agreed? Next slide, newness of life doesn't only mean being free from sin, it means being alive to God. Verse eight, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 10, for the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And faith unites us to him, so we live life to God as well. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, the death and the resurrection of Christ, for any who believe in that, are united to him. And we therefore live in a new space where sin has no hold on us and we live in abundant life. Freedom and abundance and newness of life. Mike talked so helpfully last week at the beginning of the Passion Week about the abundant life that Jesus comes to offer. We flick back two slides, Chris, and we'll leave that. We'll leave that up. So the status of a Christian is somebody who is dead to sin. Not one step removed from it, observing it, dead to it. And it has died to them and alive to God. Let me try and explain it like this. One of my favorite um, uh, experiences at school was in my English lesson, we studied The Tale of Two Cities. I didn't enjoy school very much, but I did enjoy English. I had a great teacher, and she brought to life that wonderful Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Hands up for you know the story at all? About half of us, okay. So in, in, in simple terms, the is a wonderful Dickens novel set in the French Revolution, and you have a character called Charles Darnay, who's French, a French aristocrat. Now, if you know your history, being a French aristocrat during the French Revolution is a very hazardous business. You will find your neck on the guillotine pretty swiftly, and sure enough, he does. Charles Darnay is in prison awaiting his execution the following day. Sidney Carton is the other key character. And for various reasons, Sidney Carton is so passionate for the life of Charles Darnay that he comes up with a plan to give his life instead of Charles Darnay. And ironically, or coincidentally, they look very, very similar, almost identical. So, Sidney Carton finds a way to trick himself into the prison to visit Charles Darnay the night before his death, he's permitted to do so. He gets into his, into his jail, into his prison cell, and Sidney Carton drugs Charles Darnay and they swap clothes. So now Charles Darnay is drugged wearing Sydney Carton's clothes. So the prison guards come, they assume that Sydney Carton has passed out due to the, the horror and the trauma of the occasion, and they carry him out. Although carrying him out, they're now carrying Charles Darnay out, the, execu- the soon to be executed French nobleman. And Sydney Carton wears the clothes of Charles Darnay, and the next day he goes to the guillotine, um, quoting the immortal words It is a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done. He substitutes himself for the life of Charles Darnay. And we could just stop the analogy or the illustration there. That, just the, that profound moment of somebody who would genuinely put themselves in their friend's place and die on their behalf. A substitute. And Charles Darnay effectively wakes up in England. Now, stick with me. Why I think this is a helpful illustration is because of what continues to take place. You see, Charles Darnay has, according to the French authorities, he has died. They, as far as they're concerned, have executed him. However, he now lives in England. He lives under a new dominion. He could, I suppose, return back to France, where he is essentially a criminal, a wanted man under a sentence of death, but that would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? He lives his new life in England, under a new dominion, a new rule, a new reign. And so it is with the Christian. Not only has Christ substituted himself for you, taking that penalty, taking that punishment he has also effectively given you newness of life. And so what Paul is saying is, for the Christian to carry on sinning, carry on being entangled, it's like, it's like going back to France. <laughs> He's saying it's like going back to that old country. I'm not making facetious Brexit points, but I'm just trying to keep the analogy going. It's like he's saying, that would be ludicrous. You've, you've died to sin. It has no dominion over you. Why would you go back there? So being a Christian who runs free and runs their race, free from that which entangles, is actually not just about kind of oh, trying to stop things. A friend of mine from my group club last year asked me, what are you not allowed to do as a Christian? Because his viewpoint was, that must be stuff that you just, there must be things you can't do. I say, no, I've been invited into abundant newness of life, things I can do. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, it's not just about trying not to do things. It's about living according to who you are now and where you now live. You live under a dominion of grace and of forgiveness and of the, the wonder and the goodness of God. You don't live under sin anymore. So act as though, act according to who you are. Your status is a new person, a new creation with a new heart who has newness of life. You're free from that place and alive to God. I really believe God wants to set some of us free this morning. I really believe he wants to do that. That's the status. But we know, and the writer of Hebrews knows, that sometimes our experience doesn't always match the status that we have. So the status that we have is we now live in glorious England, a land of, of grace and freedom and forgiveness. We don't live... You too well. <laughs> But our experience tells us that sometimes... I'm going to keep going with this. If, if you're French, I'm really sorry. I'm just this is the analogy. But our experience tells us we sometimes hop back on the Eurostar and go back to France and just have a little kind of look... Just kind of step back in there and before we know it, that long wet grass, if I can change metaphors, has started to wrap itself around our ankles again and we're not running with the freedom and the newness of life that we were created to be. So what is, for you, what is that long wet grass? What is France? (laughs) God wants to set you free this morning. The resurrection means there is newness of life. Your sin is not just paid for and nailed to the cross and buried to the tomb, though it is hallelujah. Christ is risen, and by being united to him, you step into a new dominion of life and of grace. I have loads more to say, but I just get the sense I should just kind of stop um, at least in a moment and just want to give us an opportunity to respond, I think and to, and to pray and to res- just receive the freedom and the goodness and the power of the Holy Spirit I just, that's, that's my prayer this week that we would just run out of these doors this afternoon with a fresh sense of freedom and liberation and the word of God gives us the power to do that and the Holy Spirit wraps around us and accelerates that power. You don't have to live life with long wet grass slowing you down. Yes, sin will always lurk and it will desperately try and trip us up. Life is not like a battle, it is a battle. The Christian life is. But there is abundant life on offer, as Mike was describing last Sunday, for you. You don't have to resign yourself. Please hear me, I love you, so I'm gonna tell you this bluntly. Do not resign yourself to that age old habit, being the long wet grass that stops you running with freedom. Don't let unforgiveness do its clinging work, because it will, and it will stop you being free. Don't let anxiety and worry do its clinging work. And hear me, I'm not just saying, Anxiety is a sin, stop doing it. I know there's a whole thing to be said about anxiety and it's rife in our nation. But by being united to Christ, we can live and run free. What Kingston needs to see is a bunch of people living life with abundance and with newness. With anxiety being buried in the grave. And unforgiveness being buried in the grave. And envy and covetousness and discontentment being buried in the grave. It is, so let's walk and run accordingly. What's your thing? What are you going to respond to this morning? What are you going to invite the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and do and bring freedom so you end up spiritually sprinting out those doors? One final thought. In Romans 7, Paul says a fascinating thing. I just want to drive this point home. The following chapter, Paul says this. God says this through Paul. Romans 7, verse 8. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. But sin, producing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That just hit me afresh this week. Coveting, the Bible word for envying. Sin. But Paul's saying, sin produced in me sin. Sin. It's not on the, on the screen, but you can look at it in your Bibles. Romans 7, verse 8. Sin produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So Paul's saying, there must be a sin behind the sin. In fact, we know that covetousness itself produces things. Covetousness produces discontentment. It could produce theft, I suppose. It could, it could stop us being generous, cheerfully and radically so. So if, in some ways, Paul's saying, there's a sin behind the sin behind the sin. So the question for you is, what is it that causes that wet, long grass to grow up and entangle itself around your ankle? Because things like greed or lust or self-pity or whatever it might be, there's always something behind it. And if we can understand what that is and receive the fresh grace and goodness of God, that's when the long, wet grass just has to die away. So here's, here's one example, and I will... I will close with this. Or oh, one example and one, and one point. Um, forgive me, it's another sporting illustration. But in the world of cricket this week, there's a huge controversy that if you picked up on it, particularly in the world of Australia. Some Australian cricketers cheated during a um, match last weekend and they were caught. And in Australia, cricket is a big, big deal. It's a like national sport. And the... the fallout has been enormous. These players have been banned for a year. They've given these heart-wrenching, tearful press conferences. They've received all kinds of criticism. It's been a huge, huge deal. And one of them, in his press conference, kind of tearfully confessing what he'd done and all this kind of stuff, said, all my life I've given myself to the glory of the Australian cricket team. I just thought it was really interesting. I'm not saying anything wrong, the Australian cricket team. There's certainly certainly nothing wrong with him giving his gifts and his talents to entertaining people and using his his skills as best he can. But what caused him to cheat sin, you could say, was his fundamental heart attitude towards serving the glory of the Australian cricket team. Indeed, probably his own glory as well. If you're after the glory of something else and that thing looks like it's being threatened, you will do anything to preserve it. And he did. He did. He got someone else to cheat on his behalf, kind of lowest of the low. Now Romans 1 tells us why that happens. Romans 1 tells us that the, the original, the sin behind the sin behind the sin is, Romans 1 says, we exchange the glory of God, the glory of the creator, and we in our hearts do a swap for the glory of created things. That's the original human condition. We're made and wired and designed to worship and give glory to, own, to He who is worthy of it. And something in our heart says, I'm not doing that. I'm gonna live for the glory of created things, maybe myself or other things. So what I'm trying to tell you, help you to understand is to look deep in your heart and soul. Because if you give in to, to lust or self-pity or to anger or whatever it might be, the answer is not to just no. don't do those things. Take a step back. Take a step back. What's the real glory that I'm after? And Come to God in, in repentance, in confession. Begin to live for his glory again as we were singing and you will find if you're living for his glory and his goodness and the fame of his name and the long wet grass begins to fall away and stops tripping us up and entangling us and the implication of the resurrection, which is that you, if you're a Christian, are released to walk and run in newness of life, becomes your experience, not just your status. And my heart is that you would experience newness of life this week, whether you've been a Christian for a week or 50 years. I'm going to stop. Um, I just, yeah, let's, just, let's just do this. We're, we're a community together. We're going to do a couple of things. Um, in a moment, the band are going to come and kind of bring a response song for us. Anna's going to sing a song to us, which I think is going to help us to respond. Um, but in the meantime, I, I just want us to really be on the front. Floor. I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment. I know it might feel a bit exposing, but I just want, you to, I want to invite you to stand. If you feel like, yep, I want to just name something to God. I'm also, I want to name the, orig- the thing behind it. I want to welcome God's forgiveness. I want to, want to welcome God's freedom. And I don't want this long, wet grass to trip me up anymore. I want to live for the glory of God and to run hard for his freedom until so I cross the finishing line to meet him once again. I just would love you to stand so I can pray for you and so we can just nail and name things. And I'm asking you to do this because I love you, not because I want to expose you, because God loves you. And if you draw near to him, he draws near to you in grace. So much abundant grace, in fact, that people said to Saul, said to Paul, this sounds too good. People will just keep on sinning if you keep mentioning this grace. It's that good. So band, could you come and join me? I just would ask you to stand if you wanna respond and run out of these doors spiritually with new freedom. Can you please stand? That'd be great. Wonderful, well done. I just want you in the quiet of your heart just to, to name the, the long wet grass, I can call it that. And I also want you to either name or ask God to show you what's giving that long wet grass permission to grow. What's the, what's the, sin, behind the sin behind the sin? Has there been an exchanging of the glory of God for the glory of something else? And just ask the Holy Spirit to show you that. Because he's not God's just not wagging his finger at you saying stop doing that. He knows you so well, he loves you so much. He's got freedom and newness of life for you. And I'm just gonna give you a few moments to do that in the quiet of your heart. Then I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna let Anna lead us in a further response. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Heavenly Father, he who with incredible power raised Jesus from the dead to resurrection life and to award all of us who through faith are united to him resurrection, newness of life. We just speak newness of life into the Christian race of these dear people that you love so much. Thank you God that you love to respond to our repentance and confession with abundant grace, abundant forgiveness, abundant kindness. Thank you that your smile is upon us. Holy Spirit, would you draw these precious people into a fresh love for you, a fresh love for your glory, and a freedom to run their race, the lane marked out for them, with freedom and with purpose and with newness. I pray for Christian races this week to be run with all of those things. We come against the schemes of the enemy who loves to trip us up and derail us and entangle us with his lies we come against those in the name of the risen victorious ascended and one day to return lord jesus christ and we speak freedom and newness of life across this room and into every heart that stood now in jesus name amen